This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Frank Chow, The Young Turks, The Progressive, The Majority Report, The David Pakman Show, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, Blacking It Up, Jim Hightower, and The Jimmy Dore Show with a bonus video clip for our Apple iOS and Android app users from The Onion. Kids, this song is about a new superhero. Now, he's not Spider-Man or Iron Man. But he is kind of like Captain America. He comes from a faraway place. Known to some as Pennsylvania. For what's morally right With all of his might You'll see his momentum From light years away He's not afraid of Muslims He takes a stand Boy, are those Muslims scary Nor is he afraid of that mean Obama man Speaking of scary Muslims He's gonna save us tonight Stop higher taxes, all right He's known to some as Rick But we know him throughout the land as the best man doing everything he can to be president of this American land. Yes, sweat of best man doing everything he can to control the uteride. Oh, what a plan! What a plan, sweat of best man. See, kids, he's super neato. And he wears sweater vests. How cool, right? So here comes the second verse little bit faster, so pay attention. Forget terrorists, they'll run, they'll flee. Freedom conquers all you'll see. Icky gays just running high. Sweater vests, man, will make you cry. They'll make sure our economy will be better for you and me. But forget about social security. You'll make sure the rich bathe in our misery. And yes, you have to believe he's spreading God's message to the heathen beings. Jesus would never help the poor. And yes, we want to start another war. It's sweater vest man doing everything. He can to be president of this American land. America. Yes, it's sweater vest man. Doing everything he can. Everything he to make sure those gays don't become icky or man. Yes, so sweater vest man. Doing everything he can. Everything to be president of this Christian land. Yes, sweater vest man. Doing everything he can. Control the uteri and women's rights Oh, what a plan, what a plan Sweater vest man Sweater vest man Wait, 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 wait Y'all, we need a prayer break One, two, three Dirty hippies and liberals wanna stop them. 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 Sweat of vest man, 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 man
again to be president of this American land. Yes, we're the best man doing everything he can to control the uteri. Oh, what a master plan. Yes, he's what a best man. Sweat the best man. He's what the best man. Yes, he's what the best man. Sweater vest is the best man. Karen Santorum uh, is going to explain how uh, Rick is actually uh, doesn't hate gay people at all. Well, let's listen in. My youngest son is gay. Um, I debated for the longest time how to handle my support of you. His friends react to what they hear. Yeah. Help me. Yeah. How do I deal with that? As Rick's wife, I have known him and loved him for 23 years, and I think it's very sad what the gay activists have done out there. They vilify him, and it's so wrong. Rick does not hate anyone. He loves them. What he has simply said is marriage shouldn't happen. Oh, that's great, man. It's not Rick Santorum's fault for saying gay people shouldn't have the same rights as straight people. It's gay people's fault for vilifying Santorum for saying that. He's <laughs> Look, it's just a policy difference, man. White people obviously should get married to black people. I mean, they're, they shouldn't have the same marriage rights. You think people didn't say that? That's literally what they said. They said that traditional marriage is between a white person and a white person, not a white person and a black person. What, what, what? Why are blacks vilifying politicians for saying that? Why don't they just calm down and know their place? Let's listen to Rick Santorum explain. This is not an issue of not doing what I'm called to do, which is to love everyone and accept everybody. And, and, uh, but this is a public policy difference. And, and I think the problem is that some see that public policy difference as a personal assault. But it's not a personal assault. It's a policy difference. Obviously, black people should drink at the colored fountain and white people should drink at the white fountain. It's just a policy difference. What are you getting all worked up for? Have your kids go to that separate but equal school. It's just a policy difference. Of course black people shouldn't get the same rights as white people. What's the matter with you guys? What are you vilifying me for? Oh no, but we've moved on. I see the new group to hate is gay people. So well, of course gay people shouldn't get the same rights as straight people. What are you guys getting worked up over a policy difference for? Well, it's interesting because the Santorum family often changes positions, so you never know where they'll wind up. Uh, of course, we've told you my favorite story about Rick Santorum. He was for capping uh, liabilities on uh, medical malpractice lawsuits at $250,000 until his wife had a back problem, in which case they sued for $500,000, twice the cap that a bill that Santorum pushed in the Senate. When they asked Santorum about it, he said, yeah, but that's my wife. Oh, I see. Okay. Now, speaking of Karen Santorum, she used to be known as Karen Garver and used to date someone else. And we find this out through Newsweek, and it's going to be relevant to their positions. Well, uh, it turns out that she used to date an abortion doctor. His name is uh, Tom Allen. Oh, wow, look at that. that. They looked like they had a bit of an age difference there, didn't they? Well, in fact, they did. Um, 
he was over 40 years older than her. She, he was 63 when they started dating, she was 22. He was an acquaintance of her father, and she rented out uh, the basement of his home, and as the news story explains, uh, moved upstairs fairly quickly thereafter. They went out for about six years, and here's where the story becomes interesting and relevant. As I said, he was an abortion doctor, and he says, Karen was a lovely girl, very intelligent and sweet. I bet she was, if you're a 63-year-old dating a 22-year-old, probably think a lot of things are sweet about that relationship. Uh, and she, he says, Karen had, quote, no problems with what I did for a living. In fact, she was so familiar with what he did for a living, because he was not just an abortion doctor, he was an OBGYN. How does she know that? He delivered her. You didn't hear that wrong. He delivered her when she was a baby out of her mother's womb. Then later, 22 years later, he's dating her. He says, oh, you're in the basement. Oh, come on upstairs to the master bedroom. So they date for all this time, and then afterwards, he doesn't want to have kids because at that point, he's nearly 70 after they've dated for six years. So she goes on to marry Rick Santorum. And all of a sudden, all of her uh, positions, uh, you know, assuming, <laughs> assuming that she didn't have any problems, as he claims, with the positions that this guy had, all of a sudden, she has tremendous problems with those positions. In fact, Rick Santorum, <laughs> if you read what uh, the Dr. Allen uh, worked for, stood for, enjoyed, it's uh, re like reading a list of all the things Rick Santorum can't stand. Uh, he uh, was active in the local chapter of the ACLU. He helped start one of the first hospital-sanctioned abortion clinics in Pennsylvania. And he also frequented the Pittsburgh Symphony. That might be why Rick Santorum also wants to cut funding for the arts. So, fascinating uh, story about, uh, about his wife. And, uh, and you know, a lot of people might say, hey, you know what, that's not really fair. It's someone she dated before. Um, uh, because I know Rick Santorum is a bastion of fairness. When it comes to judging other people, he'll judge whether you should have birth control, whether you should, you know, uh, what you should do with your body. You know, if you were raped, well, he's going to judge you there. He's going to say whether you should have the kid or not. It should be his decision, not your decision after you got raped. But if you ask, hey, look, you're getting into all of our private lives. And if you're gay, are you having sex, the wrong kind of sex? What kind of sex are you allowed to have? What kind of marriage are you allowed to have or not? Rick Santorum will get into your bed and into your, into your bedroom and, and judge everything about you. But if you say, hey, that's kind of interesting that your wife used to date this abortion doctor who delivered her and who was you know, 40 years older than her, said, how dare you bring up my wife? How dare you? That's personal. When I take away your rights, that's not personal. When you bring up my life, that's personal. Okay, that's an interesting standard. Not one that I share.
There's something very peculiar about Rick Santorum. He's gone from railing against abortion to railing against contraception to now railing against prenatal testing because, he says, that can lead to abortion. But his own wife had a very complicated pregnancy once, and they got prenatal testing for it, and they were told that his wife's life was at risk, so they themselves took steps that resulted in a premature birth with the baby dying after a couple of hours. Yet Santorum's rabidly anti-abortion position could have criminalized his own wife if his position had been the law of the land at the time. And still, Santorum shows no empathy for pregnant women who are put in extremely difficult positions and forced to make excruciating choices. Santorum doesn't want them to be able to make the decision that they and their doctors believe is best for them though he did so when it was his own wife who was pregnant. This isn't just paternalism, this is rank hypocrisy. Making matters more peculiar still, Santorum's wife actually dated an abortion doctor for six years before she met Santorum. Maybe Santorum's trying to prove that he's better or more noble than her old boyfriend, but in any case, he shouldn't be imposing his personal or his religious beliefs on women at the most harrowing moment of their lives. I'm Matt Rothschild. And that's how I see it. I want to address something else uh, you talked about in um, uh, that interview as well, about the idea of, of, uh, of President Obama's success or failure uh, in some regards will be racialized. What, what, what do you mean by that? Yeah, what I, what I said, and, and I think it's really important uh, for folks to think about, even if they ultimately you know, decide to disagree with my take on it. You know, I'm, I'm from the South, and I think that as a white Southerner, um, I have a sensibility sometimes, as do a lot of white Southerners, around how race plays out that sometimes white folks elsewhere don't. People of color, I think, all know, and those of us who are white from the South know, that when something happens in which a, a black person doesn't have to be president. It could be the head of a company. It could be the principal of a school. It could be the chief of police in a particular town um, or a mayor, you know, does something which is seen as evidence of incompetence or failure. If, if the narrative of their term in office or at the head of the institution is seen as a failure, unfortunately, because of the way that we, you know, racially generalize about people of color in this country, that ends up being seen by a lot of people, not everyone, but by a lot of people as a group-based failure. In other words, the failure is somehow ascribed to that individual's identity in a way it's not when a white person screws up in the same way. So, you know, George W. Bush, the fact that he was notorious for mispronouncing every fifth or sixth word out of his mouth and everyone sort of, even those who liked him, knew he didn't always come off as the most intelligent guy in the world. Nonetheless, that doesn't stick to white folks as a group. No, no white person would hear him mispronounce a word and then sort of like slap their knee and go, oh, come on. Man, you know, you're ruining it for all of us. But folks of color know that if President Obama were, you know, so given to mispronouncing words and making huge errors of basic, you know, vocabulary and syntax, that it would have been seen differently. All the research says that people of color have far less wiggle room 
And so my concern is that if, and this is something for progressives to think about, if this presidency goes down in terms of, its, of, the, of the popular narrative as a failure, that is going to have an effect not just on you know, his legacy as a president, which isn't really our concern or shouldn't be. It's not necessarily just a problem for other people of color running for office. It's going to be a problem for black folks trying to get a job down the road from where you live, at the mall, at the, at the bank, or whatever, because unfortunately, failure when it is black or brown sticks in the white mind, according to the research on this matter, going back 15 or 20 years, and ends up being ascribed to everyone in the group. Same thing happens to women, I should point out, as women. If a woman, a woman does something which is seen as a failure or seen as incompetent, it affects other women. That doesn't mean that we don't have an obligation or that we shouldn't criticize the president when he does something we disagree with. Like I said, we should. We should pull him to our position to the extent that's possible. But it means we just have to be aware of the way in which we issue the critique. And I think you know, if we're not aware of that, then we may be adding to sort of the, the, the racial burden that this individual carries and the burden that will then be placed on people of color generally after he's gone. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, uh, you know, uh, it's very easy. I mean, it's impossible, let's put it this way, to imagine a President Obama if candidate Obama had had three wives uh, or yeah. if yeah. Uh, President Obama had had a Swiss bank account. Or, right. uh, I mean, there, there's just the, the, the list goes on and on. I mean, he, has right. to, he had to thread a needle as a candidate. I think right. that um, uh, certainly you would have far more latitude as, as a white person. Now, uh, with that said, um, I, you know, so it's really you know, this is a, this puts progressives in a very difficult position because yes. I happen to be one of those people who and I appreciate uh, that um, President Obama's rhetoric and his yes. disposition has changed um, yes. and you see it reflected at least slightly in yes. personnel but probably not as much as I would like sure, um, since September anyways and and, right. uh, and I'm not convinced you know I guess the real question for progressives now is right. how much do we buy into that change for those of us who perceive issues of economic populism at right. least narrowly construed on the left uh, how much right. do we buy into that change and right. where where is the line where we know that we're going we're going we're 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 beginning to cut against some of our progressive values or our progressive outcomes that we want to see right now I, I think i think look we have to to, to, to be very clear when we disagree with the president. The fact that he happens to be a man of color should not in any way uh, make us you know, re resistant or reluctant to do that. But what I, what I think we have to be careful of is the, the tone of the critique. In other words, if, if a critique comes across as one that questions, A, someone's competence, um, B, someone's basic decency and humanity, C, someone's propensity for, let's say, violence. A lot of the criticisms of him as the head of the empire, for example, which of course he is, as is any president, sort of, you know, refer to him in this, like, this bloodthirsty warmonger, etc. And, you know, the problem is, if that's the critique, given the association in, the, in much of the white mind between blackness and violence, it has a different effect than when the same thing is done with a white president. That means maybe we issue the critique of the foreign policy, but we have to watch the wording. If you criticize him for being incompetent or being stupid or being a liar or dishonest, as I've heard some do as well, not only on the right but on the left, it triggers associations about 
competence slash incompetence and its association with blackness. So it's not about not issuing the critique. It's remembering that certain words, certain concepts, certain ways of critiquing trigger stereotypes. Uh, there are other ways to critique policy right, that are not nearly so personal. And, and this isn't just in this country. I remember when I went to Bermuda to do some work on these issues a few years ago, and much the same was happening. A black premier was being criticized for being corrupt, right, which for a lot of white Bermudians is a trigger for the belief in, in black criminality or was being criticized as being incompetent, which triggers stereotypes about ability or intelligence. And what I was saying at the time was, look, if you don't like what the premier's doing, you know, you certainly are entitled to speak out. But just keep in mind, it needs to be about policy, not about him as an individual, as a human being, as a president, because if you do that, of course black folks in Bermuda are going to think you're racist, whether or not that's what it is, because it triggers those associations. You know, I mean, it's 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 an interesting dilemma because there are certainly uh, some aspects. I would say, I mean, if uh, if if President Obama was white and had pursued the same agenda, um, yeah. you know, the idea that he is, um, you know, uh, basically midwifing the uh, the policies of essentially the one uh, percent or the yeah. uh, bank uh, banksters, if you want to yeah. call them, um, yeah. is. I mean, that's, in my opinion, that's that's the reality. I mean, he's surrounded himself with these people. Right. Uh, right. The implications, of course, are different because um, he didn't, uh, you know, I think his dynamic to them growing up and through the ages and even as he addresses them now are different because of his race. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I think that's true. I think that's true. And, and, and I think, again, it's just a matter of the tone. It's about the way that we issue the critique. It's about trying, I hope, to stay focused on the policy and to always make the point that, you know what, the reality is as long as we're an empire, which we're going to be until movements change that. Presidents, you know, nobody is going to be elected the head of an empire and then voluntarily, without substantial pressure, dismantle the empire. No one is going to be elected president in a capitalist, you know, patriarchal white supremacist system and somehow not cater to capitalism or patriarchy or white domination unless that is changed from below. So I think we just need to remember how change is made. Elections matter at the margins. They are significant. We ought to engage in them if we want, but we always have to remember that voting and elections are tactical, that the real work is what goes on the other 364 days, and if we're doing our job the rest of the 364 days, what happens on election day won't be nearly as important. If we're not doing our job the other 364, then it won't matter who wins on election day. Things will be awful, you know, and that's the thing I think to keep in mind. I, I think that's a great point. I think that's one of the best things about Occupy Wall Street, frankly, is that it has reminded us of that yeah. very dynamic. And and so and and I just I want to move on, but to, just to to put a point on this. So when you're talking about um, choosing that language in a more careful way than we would if it was another president. Um, right. uh, it is, you're, you're talking about it from a tactical standpoint in terms right. of, um, us wanting a society that, um, uh, where, uh, every person, regardless of race, has, uh, more opportunity and, um, uh, more, I guess, equality. Right, right, exactly. And I think the tone that we take, you know, does affect that one way or the other.
Rick Santorum said about a sick kid and, and to his mom, don't complain about one million dollar drug costs. And he referenced iPads when talking about it. Mm, this is Rick Santorum. All I can say is we look at, and this is a very big danger in our country, we look at healthcare differently. They've conditioned you to look at it differently. People have no problem going out and buying an iPad for $900. But paying $900 for a drug, they have a problem. It keeps you alive. Why? Because it's because you have been conditioned to thinking that healthcare is something that you should get and not have to pay for. Exactly. So there it is from Rick Santorum. Don't complain about million-dollar drug costs. Uh, you are the mother of a child with a rare genetic disorder. You shouldn't have a problem paying a million bucks a year for drugs because Apple's iPad can cost around $900. You know, well, I agree with well, him. He said, he said, don't worry about paying $900 for a drug because an iPad costs $900. Right, but the question was about a million dollars. Right. You know, I kind of agree with him. I mean, both iPods, iPads, and also life-saving drugs are equally necessary to sustain life. So I, I guess I agree with him. Yeah. And the other thing here also is uh, the idea that the market is going to work so well that you should be fine with just riding it out in the interim. The market will kind of sort it all out. This is from a guy with a sick child himself. And it's, it's, it would be one thing if he wanted to apply this standard to himself, right? Listen, I might not be able to afford the medications that my, uh, that my daughter needs, but he wanted lifetime government insurance for politicians and their families. So it's not that he's saying, listen, the market will sort it out. And if you don't have insurance, it's all just going to be worked out, and I'm going to be part of that. For himself, he wanted lifetime government insurance after you leave office for your whole life. But for other people, that's a different story, Lewis. Right, right. As long as you're a government employee, um, it's basically what he would call socialized health care. Exactly. So, um, major hypocrisy from Rick Santorum. But Some uh, other, people, other people buy iPads, therefore you shouldn't be worried about the cost of your child's medication. Perfect logic. Mm -hmm. Very good logic. is your next quote. Killing is my business and business is good. That, as I'm sure you all know, is a classic song by the band Megadeth. <laughs> well, the lead singer and founder of Megadeth just endorsed a presidential candidate this week, a surprising one for a guy who praises Satan in his songs. Who did he endorse? Rick Santorum. Yes, he did. <laughs> Got the Megadeth, won the Megadeth uh, caucus. 
Uh, Dave Mustaine is the lead singer and songwriter for Megadeth, the heavy metal rock band. He came out and said this week that he hoped first a Republican would win the White House and that he hoped it would be Rick Santorum. He also announced that he would be changing the band's image to reflect Santorum's values. Their hit song, Prince of Darkness, will be remixed as Shame on You, Prince of Darkness. <laughs> Actually, this is true. What happened was after this hit the news... He backed down. He walked it back. He said, quote, I never used the word endorse, unquote, because you can found a band called Megadeth and praise Satan in your heavy metal music, <laughs> but endorsing Rick Santorum is just going a little bit too far. <laughs> well, I can, I don't know. I mean... He's a, he's a businessman, right? You said killing is his business. Yes. Maybe is it that Rick Santorum is in favor of tax cuts for all of those who run a killing business? Or? <laughs> so I, did, did Mitt Romney come out and be like, I also like Megadeth. <laughs> I, I, want a, I want their thing too. I've liked Megadeth for years. It's just uh, Imagine Mitt Romney going, so you, they, they, they're headbangers. You actually have to bang your head? Okay. <laughs> How long do I have to do this? Yeah. Fortunately, my skull is made out of adamantine and yes. not bone, so my hair is stopping my skull from feeling anything. I've been thinking about today, and I'm sorry for the. Just say There's no Dr. Kelly? Yes. <laughs> How are you doing, ma'am? I'm better now. You're better now that, now that we can hear you? Uh, yes. yes uh, you, you rang the bat phone. I, I, uh, please, break it down for us. Well, I loved what you were, were talking about. That's really exciting, thinking about this question of citizenship and the way Obama disturbs um, sort of this white supremacist notion of citizenship. Right. And I think what Aaron said about the alien is key. Like that that was that was science right there. <laughs> because there's a way in which African Americans are never fundamentally conceived as being possible to be citizen. Right? So throughout history the, the, the notion of the slave is that the slave is not really a person like us. They are sort of like us, but they're, they're stigmatized. Mm -hmm. And so, therefore, it's okay to enslave them. And then after they're free, it's okay to imprison them, right? So the, the exception in the 13th Amendment that frees the slaves says, well, except for the prisons. And so then you have folks who are like, oh, really? So all I have to do is arrest black people. And then, again, they are not citizens. And so there's a way in which America has never really come to full grips with the notion of an American black person. Mm. So when you sometimes when I ask my students, what what are you? And, and they're, they're white southerners. They'll say, I'm an American. And I, I'll say, I. 
and they'll look at me. And then they'll pause and they'll say, oh, yeah, but it's, it's a pause, right? So if I'm writing an essay and I mean white Americans, I can say Americans. But if I'm writing an essay and I mean black Americans, I better put that qualifier in front of it, oh. right? So this is a way in which we've never blended blackness back in. We've never considered us real people. So what I was crying about when Obama got elected and I was crying, okay, was because the folks that I research would have been so excited to really have someone represent us as full citizen, citizen in every sense of the word. And I didn't realize the degree to which I didn't even know that I was a full citizen until someone in a body proximate to mine was elected to be the president of the United States. Valid. Mm-hmm. I believe a lot of us had that. So that's shocking to me on that side. So think of how in the white supremacist mind, how shocking it must be to mm-hmm. have that black body inhabit the highest notion of patriotism and citizenship. Mm-hmm. They feel displaced. They don't know they don't know what to do. They're confused and they're sad. And so it must be hard. Maybe they need some recovery. Of some sort, some kind of trauma, <laughs> PTSD, <laughs> counseling, talk, counseling, a program, because it's just a shock to what they knew was possible. And I'm sure they weren't thinking about it in those terms, because I wasn't thinking about it in those terms. But it is a new thing. It's a new way of being. And when you hear the people, like Eljoy was saying, take my country back, they mean like back from that guy who took it. Like, that black guy took my citizenship, and now I don't know who I am. He messed up my whole day. Wow. And that's what they're saying. Mm-hmm. He took away our, my citizenship. So, so, hmm. What does citizenship mean without people who are not citizen? The, the, the Constitution doesn't even define citizen until the 14th Amendment, when African Americans get their citizenship citizenship remains undefined in the constitution they never even bother to tell you what it is we 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 are the thing that this whole jim jam flies around that's why every time somebody says oh african-american history is not relevant african-american history is american history you don't understand america without thinking about the question of race yeah yep no no fights here and this, these are all valid points. And, it, it, and when you do think about it in that way, yeah, that's that, the, issue, the issue becomes it, if the election of Barack Obama fundamentally changed what, Ameri- what, what it meant to be American and people did not like that. Hence, yes. they want it gone. They want to go back to the way it was because this is not America. This is some crazy regime with uh, some Muslim uh, other dude sitting there taking, taking stuff from other people and this is not fair. This is not yes. America. And I, the idea that America can't evolve past what they wanted it to evolve to, mm-hmm. because they, they, it, America was cool to evolve up to a certain point, and then there was a line in the sand, and America was not allowed to be anything past that. And now that we continue evolving, people continue rising uh, uh, in the country, in, in status, in, 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 in power, it's not what they can handle. And yep. that, it's... This is now the problem. This is why we have these fights. This is why this is what this what what uh, funded the rise of the Tea Party. And even now, when you look at uh, like what Romney is saying, like he obviously it's even though I don't believe in his mind, he's thinking 
I don't want, like the black guy in charge. I don't believe that's what he's thinking, but no, I do not believe consciously. right. But I do believe he clearly looks at all of this and his wording and his phrasing and all of that good stuff is painting the picture of this is not real America. We have to fix this, even if it's doing well. It's still not real America. So it's not even about whether or not. Um, Obama does well. It's not about whether or not the economy uh, 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 fixes itself, any of that. It's still not real America because that guy did it in a way that I don't like, and so I need my country back. Yep. I mean, the other day, somebody at a, a Newt Gingrich rally screamed, uh, go back to Kenya. Hmm. And I immediately you know, heard in my little um, suffering through white suburbia as a child brain, go back to Africa. Because I heard that 50 million times from people yelling at, at black people, at me. And, and I immediately was like, oh, they just, you know, like, get out of my way. Like, I don't want to see you. I don't want to think about you anymore. Please leave. Yeah. But the problem is that we are fundamentally American. We were here before the, the founding of this nation, and, and, and we are Americans. So there's really nothing they can do to get rid of us. So they, they're trying to regress. They're trying, I mean, part of why we're having a debate about the pill this week in national politics in 2012 is this desire to go back in time wow. to a time when, when women were barefoot see. and making babies and black people weren't citizens. And that's what's dangerous is that they cannot, they don't know how to operate in the future. Yes. They only know how to operate and they know, only know how to conserve power in the past. And so that's why all of their all of their policies, sort of all the things they want to push, is always going back to a time where they knew where they and just like I knew I knew who was in charge, I knew how to govern, I knew you know that I could take care of my people when I was here. They haven't figured out yet how to how do I govern in the future, you know, and yes. sort of how do I maintain this power in the future? Everything is always talking about how do I bring this back. That's why Romney doesn't even really have any policies besides right. you know turning his taxes down even lower. Exactly. <laughs> like, there is no forward-thinking anything that they are presenting. I mean, the most... Uh, and then the most well, they don't want to go forward. Right, and that's what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. The most, you know, erroneous thing they have is to go to the moon and build a moon colony. Right? And that's oh, from New Gingrich. That's about us, too. New Gingrich. <laughs> right. <laughs> but the thing is... <laughs> but the thing is, there is no forward... Th everything is regression. So we can't um, fo focus on climate change. We can't focus on any of that stuff. We need to just oh, no. go back to coal. We need, you know, we need to go and drill in our own. Like we were, dr we were drilling when we were exploring the, you know, the rest of the country when we didn't know what the West had and when we like that. <laughs> like, are really are we going back to a gold rush time? Seriously, <laughs> like we can't think out, you know, future. And so they haven't learned yet. They haven't like they need to come to Jesus meeting to go. Like, how do we govern or how do we we focus on the future because trying to circle the country back to the past is consistently going to put us at odds with our own citizens. Well, we're not really citizens, so that's. I said with our own citizens because <laughs> I think because even in and you know say uh, uh, even in their own ranks and in in terms of the 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 disparity that they have they, they have still don't have a cohesiveness in terms of um you know the, there still exists that wide swath of middle class and rich even in other you know in other ethnicity groups so they don't have a complete consensus with themselves to bring you know bring everybody back to uh to the country back where it was Tell me, doctor, where are we going this time?
Rick Santorum is the latest darling of the most extreme of the GOP's extremist voters. And wow, get an earful of this guy's moral piety. Let's start where it all starts for us humans, conception. Not only does Santorum insist that life begins at the instant that a sperm contacts an egg, he also wants to preserve the sanctity of the sperm itself by outlawing birth control. Yes, every sperm counts. Last October, he warned about, quote, the dangers of contraception in this country. It's not okay. It's a license to do things in a sexual realm that is counter to how things are supposed to be. Indeed, Ayatollah Rick is a bit obsessed with what you might be doing in your bedroom. The Supreme Court, he asserts, was wrong to rule that we have a right to consensual sex in our homes. Then you have the right to bigamy, he wails, the right to polygamy, to incest, adultery, the right to anything. Then comes his punchline, this right to privacy doesn't exist, in my opinion, in the United States Constitution. In a January interview on CNN, the sanctimonious Santorum offered another startling insight into his moral code. When asked what he would say to his daughter if she had been raped, was pregnant, and was crying for an abortion, he actually said, the right approach is to accept this horribly created, in the sense of rape, gift of life, and accept what God is giving you. He added that his daughter, and presumably yours too, ought, quote, to make the best out of a bad situation. This is Jim Hightower saying, so much Rick, so little time. I haven't even gotten to global warming, no such thing, he says. Or his endorsement of the Crusades as being about, quote, core American values. Or his comparison of homosexuality to man-on-dog sex. But with Santorum now in the spotlight, we can count on many more Rickisms to enlighten us. I'm a Roman Catholic and have been since before I was born. And the one thing they say about Catholics is they'll take you as soon as you're warm. You don't have to be a six-footer. You don't have to have a great brain. You don't have to have any clothes on your a Catholic the moment that came Because every sperm is sacred Every sperm is great If a sperm is wasted God gets quite irate you remember John Ensign's scandal? That's the senator from uh, Nevada who was having sex with uh, his top staffer's wife, okay? Uh, and uh, her name was Cindy Hampton, his name was Doug Hampton, and uh, he had had sex with her over and over again. Uh, the rest of his fellow conservatives uh, in the C Street uh, household and in the National Prayer Breakfast found out about it. Uh, in fact, the leader of that uh, group is Tim Coe, was in a parking lot while Ensign was in a hotel room banging his staffer's wife, called him and said, hey, listen, I know where you are, I know what you're doing, put your pants back on and get out of it. And Ensign wouldn't do it. He said he was going to leave uh, the affair and, and not do it anymore, and then he broke down and went back and had sex with her again. On Christmas, when their families were together, that's when they revealed to their families that they'd been sleeping with one another. The whole story is revolting. In the middle of this story, Doug Hampton, the guy who was cuckolded by Ensign, one of my favorite words, uh, goes and makes a mistake of telling Fox News about it. He says, oh, I got, 
you know, you won't believe what Ensign did. He sends it to Megyn Kelly. Megyn Kelly says, yeah, okay, good one. Uh, I'll tell the bosses and we'll see how we can protect the Republican senator. And then Doug Hampton makes a further mistake and sends an email to Rick Santorum, of all people, and says, look, you're a family values guy. Can you help me with this? Rick Santorum's like, great, no problem. That day, immediately, takes the email, forwards it to Senator Ensign and says, you better get on top of this. This guy is going to come and tell everybody that you had an affair with his wife. Make sure that you can... You know, do damage control, whether, you know, you leak something bad about Doug Hampton, you get out in front of the story, whatever it is. But here's what I, Rick Santorum is basically saying. I don't give a damn about Doug Hampton. I don't give a damn about family values. I don't give a damn whose wife is getting slept with. I got to go protect my buddy, my so-called conservative buddy. They, they're all in this group, the National Prayer Breakfast, where they're like, family values. I guess the value that Ensign had was that he wanted to have sex with your family. So, and then Santorum hears about that and Chris goes, great, how could I protect him? How could I help him? That's Mr. Family Values, Rick Santorum. Now, you haven't heard a lot of these stories about Rick Santorum because he was irrelevant before. No one bothered to tell you all the skeletons hiding in his closet or the skeletons that he helped other people hide in their closets, right? But now that it looks like he's going to finish in the top three in Iowa, now I can tell you all the reasons why we thought Rick Santorum never had a chance because he is as bad as it gets. Whether it's leading the K Street Project, whether it's covering up affairs of his fellow so-called conservative senators, whether it's his hypocrisy on tort reform, and the list goes on and on. Okay, so why waste any more time? Let's get right to uh, Mr. Mr. I'm Mitt. I'm worth 150 or 200 million dollars, depending. Uh, he's let us know what he's really worried about and what he's not worried about in American society today. Ready? I care about Americans. I'm not concerned about the very poor. We have a safety net there. If it needs a repair, I'll fix it. I'm not concerned about the very rich. They're doing just fine. I'm concerned about the very heart of America, the, the 90, 95% of Americans who right now are struggling, and I'll continue to take that message across the nation. All right. I, I know I said last question, but i got to ask you. you. You just said, I'm not concerned about the very poor because they have a safety net. And I think there are lots of very poor Americans who are, are struggling who would say, that sounds odd. Can you explain that? Well, you had to f finish the sentence, uh, Soledad. I said, I'm not concerned about the very poor that have a safety net, but if it has holes in it, I will repair them. Got it. Okay. Uh, the, the challenge right now. Okay, got it. So, so, but you're not worried about them. He really no. took it to her, huh? Wow, really? Hey, you got to finish the sentence there. I don't yeah. care about the poor, but yeah. for real. I, I, Poor people are not Americans, I think is what he was saying. Yeah. I don't care about people with stage four cancer. I'm concerned about people that just discover a lump. <laughs> That's who we really need to focus yeah. on. That's people what, that, yeah, are jumping to conclusions. I don't know. Yeah, call, call me a cynic, but uh, 
if I had a net to repair, he's just doesn't seem like the guy to go to for a net repair, <laughs> a safety net, or mm-hmm. there's nothing like safe kind of, about him, really. <laughs> no, it seems, you know what it is. I think maybe he's like. He, any fan of the circus knows it's more exciting without a net. <laughs> you know, that's probably... He seems like a guy that might come in and uh, just decide that net repair isn't profitable. It's, uh, well, how do you make money on net repair? That I think Mitt has confused the safety net with uh, with a swimming pool and a sweet ride. I think that's... <laughs> they, they, They've got everything. They, the way he says safety net, he, ma- he makes it sound like a bouncy house. You know, <laughs> it's, it's, it's not. They've got a safety net. What more could they want? You mean they want a safety net... And a glimmer of hope that they won't spend their entire lives in poverty. Talk about greedy. Yeah, that's what yeah. I'm saying. I'd like to hear a journalist uh, say to him, uh, "Give me three or four names of anybody you know that makes less than fifty thousand dollars a year." Oh, my uh, my my three maids. They both. <laughs> uh, and my uh, my together shoe they make 50, anybody uh, not yeah. employed by you that makes less than fifty thousand oh, dollars. Sure, a year. the shoeshine guy down at this train station that I drive by. Uh, yeah, yeah, that would be a tough question for him, I imagine. You know, come on, the, you guys, the poor is the poor do have it pretty good. You know, the old saying, "Poverty is bliss," isn't that the old <laughs> saying, <laughs> right? And when you've never had anything, you have no idea how much you're missing. All the poor need to be happy is a fistful of cheese <laughs> and daytime judge shows. Now that's living, <laughs> right? That's what Mitt's saying. And you know what? And if uh, and if the cheese or judge shows start to unravel. Mitt's the guy to fix it. Oh, sure. sure. He'll step right in with a hole for that safety net. That safety net of daytime judge shows and government cheese. Mm-hmm. And that's so they can they can also do the safety dance. I love the idea. <laughs> isn't the, YouTube it? Isn't isn't the, the uh, plan then to let the people that are kind of poor become very poor, and then the safety net will catch them? So you really don't have to do anything. Well, that's what I'm saying. Why wouldn't you just try to make the middle class move them down to being very poor? Right. No worries. Yeah. Then you don't have to worry about them anymore. Yeah. Sure. That's literally what he's saying. He's saying, I don't worry about the very poor because they're doing great. Because you know who makes out during a depression? The very poor. The very poor. <laughs> they make out like bandits. They've been Sons doing since 2007, 2008. The very poor have really. Mm. I don't. I don't know. If the, I went down at the homeless shelter. They have silk pillows. And that's. Yeah. I'll tell. That's how well they're doing down there. Yeah. They have electric can openers for their dog food. That's <laughs> how well that they're doing. The, I think. Uh, I think Romney is hoping that the very poor will be too weak to vote. <laughs> <laughs> But you know who isn't do you know who isn't doing very well? You know who really needs our help? It's the people who are a couple of notches on the economic ladder above the very poor. They're hurting. What we need to do is You and me? Yeah, yes, me and you. So what would they I think what would help us if is if they took away some of our money so then we could be considered very poor. And yeah. then we'd be we'd be skating along very nicely. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. It's like a hammock. At least. <laughs> Just like living in a hammock. <laughs> yeah. That safety net. I... It looks like a safety net, but it's swinging <laughs> back and forth. Yeah, I've seen a couple of those social safety nets behind a dumpster on Hollywood Boulevard. Those guys <laughs> sleeping in them. Really nice. You know, at least the reporter pushed back a teensy bit before letting him mm-hmm. just, again, spew that BS that the poor are doing swimmingly. Yeah. Right now, the poor, the, you know, we all know that yeah. the poor is doing great. Oh, yeah. Oh, the poor, the people who are really taking it on the chin. It's a boom industry right now. Mm-hmm. You want to get in, get in early. I saw a guy in line for unemployment and he was peering at the paperwork through a monocle. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. That is. You know, it's not really a safety net. It's more of a filthy blanket, <laughs> you know, just to be. Uh, uh, accurate about it. If you've ever seen those poor people sitting by the bus with no, they're not really trying to catch the bus. 
They're waiting to die. <laughs> Steve, with that uplifting comedy of Steve Rosenfield, ladies well, and gentlemen. you know, I painted a picture there. I got it. I love it. You're welcome. Theater of the mind. <laughs> so the whole thing was, and the reason why Mitt Romney is going to be our, our the, not ours, but the Republican nominee, is because inside the Republican Party, they've been saying things like, well, we have to, we can't have Newt Gingrich be our nominee because if it's Newt Gingrich, then it's the whole race is going to be about Newt Gingrich, and we need to make this about Barack Obama. Right. So if Mitt Romney's our nominee, somehow then it's going to be about because right. he doesn't he doesn't have three wives and all right. that stuff. He didn't right. work for Fannie yeah. Mae, but he said stuff like this all the time. Yeah. He's he's making the first George Bush look like a social worker. <laughs> yeah. You know. Yes. And he's, he's making the second Bush look look articulate. Barack Obama's sure a lucky man, lucky in the ineptitude of his opponents. The Republican primary battle this year has been one folly after another, and now the party bigwigs are pulling their hair out because they are left with a very damaged, putative frontrunner in Mitt Romney, a fading but fanged Newt Gingrich, and a deeply flawed Rick Santorum, who couldn't help himself from making a sexist comment last week about women's emotions getting in the way of their soldiering. This has been like watching a 10-car pileup on the icy interstate. It hasn't been pretty. Meanwhile, the economy somehow is managing to show signs of life, in part thanks to Obama's stimulus program, in part thanks to the Federal Reserve keeping interest rates low, and in part thanks to the American consumer, who is finally spending again. This doesn't mean the economy will remain strong. The euro could fall apart yet. If Israel attacks Iran, all bets are off, and China's bubble could burst. But if none of those things happen... I'm prepared to say for the first time in many, many months that it looks like Barack Obama is the odds-on favorite to win another term. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. More primaries, three wins for Rick Santorum. Minnesota, Santorum 45, Ron Paul in second place with 27%. Missouri, Santorum 55, Romney in second place with 25%. And Colorado, Santorum 40, Romney close behind at 35. The delegate count now, Lewis, is Romney 106, Gingrich 38, Santorum 22, and Ron Paul with 20 delegates. Here's something interesting. Donald Trump took credit for Romney's Nevada win 
is he taking credit for these three losses for Mitt Romney, or did Romney simply not lose by as much as he would have if he didn't have that Donald Trump endorsement? That's got to be it. You think that's his line on it? Yeah. Santorum, one could say, is surging from behind Mitt Romney, which, uh, given the, the, the vast uh, overtones about Rick Santorum, may be a statement with multiple meanings. I like that one. That's pretty good. I actually think, it, in, in seriousness, that the Republican Party is so fractured right now between the religious nutty right, the Tea Party nutty right, <laughs> the moderate Republicans, the libertarians. There's really, we can point out, you know, a lot of people say, oh, the Democratic Party is fractured or the Republic, Re Republican Party is fractured. We can really pick out exactly the way in which the Republican Party is split into so many different directions and I still don't know how this is going to play in a national election. Early polls are saying Obama's doing well against any of these potential Republican nominees but those polls really mean nothing right now because they're going to be so tainted by people's opinion of the tone of the Republican race in general. Once there is a Republican nominee I think that people who are now saying ah, I might vote for Obama if it's this Republican instead of that one, are going to come back to the Republican Party if that's the way they've been voting historically. Yeah, I mean, clearly, clearly the Republican Party is, uh, is, is fractured. And if the Democratic Party is, I don't think there are too many serious implications there for Obama. No, not right now. I mean, there was this idea in 2008 that there was the, the Obama side and then there was the Hillary Clinton loyalists who were not going to vote for Barack Obama. Are the Hillary Clinton loyalists going to vote for Mitt Romney? I mean, let's, let's be honest. Right. It's not going to be a realistic effect. Uh, the Republican candidates also aren't really the best choices even for, even for the Republican Party. Obviously, from the outside, we're laughing. But even within the Republican Party, these aren't really the best choices. It's kind of like these are the last four items left on the shelf at a convenience store before a hurricane hits. You know, you're going to take them because you've got, you need them. There's right. a hurricane coming. But you know, given the choice, you're not going to be making that, that uh, selection. Good, good analogy, Dave. You like that one? It was pretty good. One, one of your better ones, yeah. Patrick from Near Dallas. Just going to let you know that I don't know how everyone else listens to the podcast, but I usually save it up before I go out on my morning run. That way my runs are fueled by righteous indignation as I tear around the neighborhood at my glacial pace. But anyway, uh, it just gets me fired up to go run. So anyway, thanks. Oh, one other thing, uh, the vaccine song, uh, it's all right if you want to come back to me. I was thinking about this today when uh, I was listening to one of the podcasts. People were talking about how Obama's going back to his populist message now that it's time to get reelected. And uh, I thought that might be a, a good in-betweener song, uh, the vaccine. It's all right if you want to come back to me. Thanks. Bye. Hi, Jay. This is Chris from Middletown, New York. I want to thank you for a great show, one of the better shows on the whole web. I am confused. At what point is the United States government no longer considered legitimate? 
The last two administrations have been looting the Treasury for illegal war against innocent civilians. The last two administrations have been changing the laws, so the president has dictatorial powers to abduct, detain, murder even, without judicial review. Is this legitimate government? And how come so many were so blind? Obama's 2008 campaign, he said if elected, he was going to have a bump in military spending. That's an increase in military spending. He told people who were planning on peace lines to protest the war... He told them he was going to have an increase in military spending, and they still wanted to be loyal Obama people. Don't blame me. I voted Nader. Um, is it so hard to even imagine voting for a Green Party candidate? I mean, a Green Party candidate we have right now, Dr. Jill Stein, is running. Why not? She's never even mentioned. Come on, we're the left. We should be looking at things. Why does so many on the left claim that not voting for a Democrat is a wasted vote? Come on, America, wake up. Democrat, Republican are two sides of the same corrupt coin. If you've been divided, you've been conquered. And so far, the division is like fight liberal against conservative. And says, so hey, we're America, there's problems, let's fix it. America in the new millennium is like Germany of the 1930s. They get the government they deserve. Maybe the 99% of us should turn off the TVs and vote green. Thanks, and uh, keep up the good work. Jay, it's Colonel Moses out in Portland, Oregon, and I called you about a year ago talking about the uh, fire fresh hour campaign and the uh, murderous police officers here in Portland. Well, I uh, am glad to let everyone know that because of the persistence of the police accountability activists in Portland, the mayor and the chief of police had no political ground to stand on when the officers association and the police trainers recommended that they reinstate officer fresh hour so he no longer has a job here in the city of portland and didn't get his back pay poor guy anyway thanks to the police accountability activists across this country and uh keep up the great work thanks a lot jay Hey, Jay, it's Colin from Cleveland, Ohio again. Uh, just listen to the last podcast and have to tell you, Blacking Up has been an amazing addition to the lineup of your uh, clips. I love that they're talking about revisionist history, and I think that it's, it goes a lot deeper than a lot of people see. Um, too many people in this country are using revisionist history to condone their attitudes about politics, about everything. People in this country won't own our past because it's very inconvenient, it's very ugly, and it basically it would make them have to really think about their actions and their thoughts and their prejudices. Again, it's really great to hear it from you know yet another source on the show, and I think that would be another good topic for a show is just you know uh, about all the different forms of uh, prejudices and racism, and not just against ethnic Americans. But, I mean, the Native, Native Americans, American Indians, people in this country, we won't own up what we've done to them. We just talk about our founding fathers in this country, in this country. And to this day, I mean, the American Indians are literally, at best, second-class citizens. No one in this country really seems to either care, feel terrible. You know, and to this day, they're still just, they have very few rights, more and more taken away daily. Thanks for the show, Jay.
Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. So the exciting news of the day is that uh, not only have I started my training in earnest for my big ride in the middle of May. I'm raising money for climate change organizations. I'm going to ride 300 miles in five days. And so so the, it's exciting that I've started my training and uh, exciting for you because I'm going to start telling you about it every once in a while. So I've got, I, I went out on a couple of, of, of rides they weren't all that far. I didn't push all that hard or, you know, it was, it was pretty easy going, just, just getting the feel for it. And then yesterday I feel like was, was the first sort of genuine ride I went on. You know, it was a, a really solid 26 miles uh, that I went, you know, it was like 40 degrees, 20 mile an hour winds, overcast, you know, perfect, <laughs> just perfect riding weather. And so you know, as I said, I went 26 miles, and I have this app on my phone that that not only keeps track of of pace and and distance and all those sorts of things, but it, it does its best to predict how many calories I've burned. And this is a number I've never seen before from riding. You know, I've, I've you know I used to ride a long time ago, and uh, you know I, I knew like my speed and and distance, but I never guessed how many calories I was burning. And so I assume based on my distance and speed and age and gender, it guessed that I burned in the neighborhood of 1,200 calories from, from an hour and 45 minutes of riding going 26 miles. And, and so I, only recently, honestly, I, I've kind of started to comprehend what a normal human intake of calories is in, in, in a given day. So you know, 1,200 calories, like that's an entire meal. Basically, and I was like, "Oh God! Like I have to, I'm gonna have to increase my food intake just to prevent myself from withering away. Like this is gonna be crazy." And and it certainly helped to explain how hungry I was at the end. And so, because you, you you not only have the physical exhaustion, and and it's cold outside, so you're a little cold, and and then the the endorphins kick in, and so that feels good, but it also kind of makes you want to take a nap. And so then you're doubly exhausted and then you're starving. And so you just – you try to eat like two meals all at once to to make up for that. So that, that was basically my day yesterday. It was like – it was essentially a day set aside for listening to content for the show because that's a huge part of my job obviously. So you know, I was listening to stuff on the bike and then afterwards, I was just recuperating all day long and like – my brain wasn't quite working right. I was, you know, my thinking was a little bit fuzzy. I was exhausted, and basically the only thing I managed to do uh, that day was to calculate how many more times I was going to have to do this before the race. And it comes up, and well, not race, but ride. And uh, and it turns out between like forty and fifty rides uh, to to kind of like build myself up to be capable of of not riding twenty six miles, but between 60 and 80 miles five days in a row. So it just gives you a little bit of an insight as to uh, what I am uh, preparing for and, and what it's going to take, and uh, which is why, of course, I'm going to continue to thank donors who are helping me reach my goal. I'm trying to raise $2,400 for some climate change nonprofits that I uh, personally know and trust. And, and so I wanted to thank Ms. Dimple, Ray J, 
the uh, Tulsa slash Oklahoma City based company uh, Poop Nine One One. So if you have pets and uh, they are making a mess of your yard, Poop Nine One One is who you want to call. And then uh, Joyce, Sean, and Tim have all uh, kicked in to uh, to that, which brings me to oh, I for twenty four percent of my goal. So um, so huge thanks to everyone who has donated so far. Uh, as I said, I'm, I'm up to 24%. I'm feeling good. It's uh, the the donations are coming in, uh, you know, slow but steady, and and I have the utmost confidence we're going to reach that goal. So please keep those donations coming in, and I will certainly promise to let you know how the training goes. And, and, you know, it, it'll it'll get better, but it's also going to get worse because I have to I have to start riding longer and longer distances. So. My prediction is it's going to stay about equally miserable as I get better and the rides get longer. So we all have that to look forward to. So that's going to be it for today. Uh, in terms of supporting the show, of course, you could become a member or make a donation or simply tell everyone you know about it. Between episodes, you can join up with us on Facebook and Twitter as well as donating your Facebook and Twitter accounts. That helps us spread the word through you. It is all. It sounds complicated, but it's not, and it's all explained on the website before you commit to anything, so check that out. For information on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every third day, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show, from bestoftheleft.com. Thought and black and white, took a picture that wasn't right. 